0: This is the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by The Peers Project. Hello, Peers. Welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. Peers speaking, Peers listening. This is a conversation for you. I'm your host, Michelle Akitano, founder of The Peers Project, millennial entrepreneur, world traveller, podcast expert, Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. Sometimes it's easier to go with the flow, blend into the crowd and stick to the stuff we know. Often the world's problems can be so overwhelming and it's easier to throw our arms up and call it a day. But as today's guest reveals, even if we can't solve the world's problems, we can still make a huge difference in the lives of others. When George Clement discovered that 1.2 million New Yorkers were living in deficit housing, and displaced tenants stood no chance against their lawyered-up landlords, he knew something had to change. Along with his co-founders, George created JustFix NYC, a nonprofit that supports New Yorkers in neglectful housing situations with technology that helps them build well-documented cases. Since its inception, JustFix NYC has gone from strength to strength helping over 2,500 displaced tenants find a better way of life. I'm super excited to talk to George today about how we can get creative with problem solving, the importance of humility as a pillar of business and character, and how to change what frustrates us. For those of you who haven't yet, make sure to take a screenshot of this episode right now, post it to your Instagram story, and tag us at the peers Project. So, that other peers out there can benefit from the wisdom of these Forbes 30 under 30 listees. Okay, without further ado, here is my conversation with the brilliant George Clement. George, welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. We're so excited to have you on the show today. Hello, hello. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. So you, know, you and I connected recently over LinkedIn. And when I looked into you and all the awesome work that you were doing, I knew I had to have you come on the show. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much. Awesome. Cool. So look, for, for those of us who don't know who you are and what you do, tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Yeah. So... Uh, I run an organization based here in, in Brooklyn, New York, actually, a nonprofit called JustFix NYC. Uh, and in addition to that, I'm also uh, a master's student at the Kennedy School at Harvard. Uh, so studying public policy and especially technology policy and, and affordable housing policy, which, which uh, both relate very closely to the work at JustFix.
0: Love that. And it's so interesting what you're doing with Just Fix, and I can't wait to dive deeper into that. But before we do, I want to start with a question that I've often found to be very insightful and revealing, and that is, where did you grow up and how has this impacted the choices you've made in your life and in your career so far?
1: Yeah, so uh, I was actually born upstate in New York uh, and only lived there for a year, then lived in Austin, Texas for a year when I was also an infant, and then grew up uh, from basically age three to 13 in Kansas. Uh, So smack dab in the middle of of the US uh, between Lawrence, Kansas, where my parents uh, were involved with the University of Kansas, which is the state school there, uh, and the suburbs of Kansas City. So very much a different uh, type of place, different type of people uh, than in New York, and uh, we picked up and when I was 13 years old in eighth grade, moved from rural Kansas to Morningside Heights in New York. Uh, So really into the thick of things in New York City. Uh, And I've been in New York ever since, other than um, when I did my undergrad uh, at the University of Wisconsin. Uh, It has definitely had a profound impact to sort of see these two sides of of the U.S. I think, uh, you know, in recent, Uh, Years we've thought of it as like Trump America and and sort of the leftist America. And I think um, I see a a lot more depth to sort of those two sides of the country. Um, But it has been really fascinating to see the similarities as well as obviously the really stark differences in terms of uh, uh, just what people's day-to-day lives are like. Um, But there is extreme inequality regardless of where you go Uh, in the US. And when I was in Kansas, when I think about what displacement meant or what housing instability meant, it was literally uh, friends at school whose uh, trailer parks were destroyed in a tornado. That's what housing instability meant. And in New York, you think about New Yorkers who are displaced because of uh, harassment and wrongful eviction from their landlords. Right And the kinds of larger effects of gentrification that we see here. Uh, and so um, it's really shaped, I think, um, what I've chosen to do and I think just how I see the world and uh, I feel at home in both of those kinds of communities um, in a way that I think is 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 sort of rare for uh, you know a New Yorker, which I, I feel like an adopted New Yorker to sort of feel at home in, in a place like Kansas, but Um, you know, I've, I recently visited again, uh, since for the first time since, since I moved when I was 13, visited Kansas and, uh, it was amazing to see how things have changed there, um, and, uh, have some barbecue and and that kind of thing. So, uh, that was really nice. Mm.
0: Well, I love it. I think it's, it's so interesting that you had the, I wouldn't say the best of both worlds, but you experienced the two, you know, and they're both so different, it seems, what do you think, how do you think, so obviously that impacted what you're doing now. What do you think were, at the time when you were younger, were there things that you did to kind of combat what you were experiencing? You know, were there, did you ever get creative around solving some of these issues that you saw around you or did you just kind of take it all in?
1: You know, I, I, I think um, my parents are both school teachers Uh, And I think that also had a a really big impact, just given what our dinner table conversations were every single night, Um, and thinking about uh, the various educational experiences I had as a result of of sort of what my parents did as well. So when I was really little, uh, living in in Lawrence, Kansas, my parents actually ran a school. So when we moved to Lawrence, uh, I have an older brother, my parents were uh, not thrilled about the public school uh, options in the town. So he, you know, he went to a, a public elementary school for a year and uh, they wanted something more. And so they decided to sort of take it into their own hands and literally start a school uh, out of a house. So I was uh, four at the time, my brother was nine, and we were the two uh, ends of the spectrum in terms of age in the school, so he was the oldest and I was the youngest and then there were students uh, that were all ages in between as well. And uh, they literally rented a house that had previously been a frat house and it was really, really large. Uh, it was four stories and a base and a full basement and this big backyard, but it was a total mess when we moved in uh, and so renovated it and uh, for the next three years, I went to school, literally I would wake up, walk down the stairs, uh, get a bowl of Cheerios and go to French class in my living room to start the day, along with 15 to 20 other uh, kids. And I think to me, you know, I I didn't think of it as my parents are entrepreneurs at the time, uh, but to think of it as they saw a problem and they said, you know, the only way to fix it, the only way to uh, give our kids the education we want them to have, um, is to create that uh, community ourselves. And uh, so they ran it for a few years, and then we ended up just going into the regular public schools. After that, it's a very hard thing to try to uh, create a, a, a private a private school um, out of a home in a place that has no private schools. That's not a, a standard. Um, but it, it really stuck with me, I think, this idea of um, if you're not satisfied with the status quo, uh, just go do something about it. And so, um, you know, I, I, I think it, it similarly was a bit of a bug in my ear when I uh, was in middle school. And like most people, most most people, when you're in middle school, not terribly happy about anything because you're 12, 13 years old. Uh, and I was really eager to, to have a change. I, I felt like. Um, there was more out there than what I was experiencing living in, in Kansas. My brother had just, um, uh, was, was graduating from high school and was going to Columbia. So he was coming to move to New York. And, uh, I literally, uh, I told my parents I was going to send myself to boarding school if they didn't move, uh, and literally signed myself up for the the secondary school, uh, admissions test. And they thought I was sort of bluffing, I think at first, uh, but I took it and I started the applications for boarding schools, that kind of thing, and eventually they said, okay, this kid is serious about this. Uh, why don't we all just relocate to New York? We'll be closer with, uh, with your brother, uh, and maybe that'll be um, a welcome change for the, for the whole family. Uh, and so coming to New York then, I was uh, a total, totally a fish out of water, right? Now I was um, this hick from middle America uh, coming to this private high school in New York, um, you know, I was on financial aid, uh, whereas money was, was not an issue at all for most of the families there. And so really seeing these two sides of, of New York city then as well, uh, especially with my parents teaching in public high schools. Um, and so again, coming, uh, to the dinner table every night and talking about what my experience was like at this, um, very, very, uh, wealthy, um, school with this beautiful, lush campus and everything. And then my parents working in, um, in different high schools in the Bronx and what their experience of New York was. Um, and, and sort of just getting to share about what, what an odd place this is where you can have, um, such vast differences in, in, in wealth, um, across the street from each other. Right, and there are these blocks in New York where you have um, public housing across the street from you know some luxury condo, uh, and it's really, really stark. And so I think it was something that was always just um, something I I talked about and thought about, um, uh, not necessarily thinking that I would make a career out of working on these these types of issues, uh, but just through observation and through the conversations that we were having as a. As a family, I think it was something that was always uh, of interest to me.
0: Mm. So fascinating. It's so cool because I've read about what you do and what you do now and a bit about your past. But it's so interesting hearing the play by play now. So, okay, so then talk to us a little bit about when you'd finish High school. You know, you'd you'd made your way to New York, you'd convinced your parents, you made it to high school high school here, and you were experiencing that lavish lifestyle. Well, when you were at high school with your parents, you know, coming home and them having a completely different experience of schools and whatnot. So, you know, what what how did that lead you into deciding where to study and what to study?
1: So, my dad had actually gone to the University of Wisconsin, he had played soccer there. And as random as it sounded to my classmates in New York, where the University of Wisconsin, why would you go to Wisconsin of all places? Um, it was always something that I that I had thought would be an option. Um, I visited during my senior year in high school uh, and absolutely fell in love with the place. It's uh, very similar to... Uh, and I think this was a big draw for me. It's very similar to, to Lawrence, Kansas, where I, I I grew up when I was little. In that, it's sort of this um, this blue dot in an otherwise fairly red uh, state. Uh, so this like small progressive uh, college town, um, where a lot of the surrounding area is sort of you know the traditional more more conservative um, rural America, and um, You know, it's 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 a place that uh, is also the really classic college experience that you you think of, Um, you know, uh, going to football games and having these enormous lecture halls filled with students. And, um, you know, there's an endless number of new people to meet. Uh, and it was something I was really craving after going to a a, a really small high school. My graduating class was one hundred and ten or something. Uh, and so I was really eager to um, be in a place where i would I would get to meet new people constantly. Uh, and so it was it was a really, really good fit for me um, at the time. and uh, I very much am one of those people who looks back and says, "Oh, this was the best four years of my life uh, because it was it was just so so fun. It was very um, self-guided because the school was so large. So nobody um, if from the school's perspective sort of has your back, is making sure you aren't falling behind or checking up on you about grades or anything like that. It's, it's completely self-directed and you get out of it what you put in. Um, and so I actually started uh, thinking that I would I would study something in business, so I applied to the business school there and and got in. And uh, my freshman year, I took uh, accounting, sort of the intro the intro uh, level no. accounting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You can see where this is going, I'm sure. Uh, and and like got a C in it. Really, really hated it. And said, and I looked at the rest of the requirements, and it, it uh, included more accounting. I Was like, okay, this is not something I'm I'm uh, I'm trying to, to mess with for. The next three years, uh, and I had taken that same that same semester. I had taken a class um, in the sociology department, and I actually didn't know at the time Wisconsin has this really famous sociology uh, program, both you know undergrad all the way through the the, the PhDs and the professors there. Um, and I really like fell in love with um, with sociology, and it was this class about uh, demography and the professor was really, uh, was really, really fantastic, and the material was super engaging, and so I took an, another couple classes in sociology the next semester and ended up majoring in, in sociology with a, a minor in African studies, um, which is also actually a, a, a really good program at Wisconsin, as odd as that is. Wisconsin is also like the whitest state ever, Uh, so having this like really amazing African studies department is, is, uh, uh, really an interesting, an, an interesting development that that happened. Um, but got to study abroad in, in South Africa at the university of Cape town, um, which was another incredible experience and, um, uh, ended up graduating a a semester early. And that was sort of my my focus but um you know got to do some research with that professor i took the the very first sociology class with over my last year and a half and um just got really interested in in uh uh, sociology work that was happening domestically in the u.s um and unbeknownst to me at the at the time um, this guy named matt desmond uh, was a phd student at wisconsin in the sociology department Um, and fast forward uh, you know, five, six years. Uh, he is a MacArthur Genius winner, uh, Pulitzer Prize winner for a book called Evicted, uh, that is basically like the seminal text about, um, housing inequality and the eviction crisis in the U.S. Uh, and so he is sort of like the most well-known, uh, academic and thinker in, um, housing affordability in the, in the U S right now. Uh, and I had no idea that he was literally like down the hall from me while I was taking classes as an undergrad and, um, you know, we, we talk often now and that type of thing. And so it's sort of funny to, to see how the paths have, uh, mm-hmm. converged actually.
0: Mm-hmm. So interesting. I absolutely love this conversation. I could just sit here and listen to you pretty much all day. (laughs) I think it's really interesting. I think that one thing I want to touch on here is, I guess, what one of your biggest learnings about yourself was during that university time, your study at Cape Town, you know, understanding, gaining an understanding of who you were. Like, what was one of your greatest takeaways about yourself during this time?
1: Um... My, my friends in college would, would uh, laugh about this, but I, I would say um, the university experience as a whole was very, like, uh, self-guided, self-starting. And uh, part of that was my, my group of friends was extremely entrepreneurial. Um, so uh, one of my roommates and, and best friends um, had started a company booking concerts uh, on campus. So bringing DJs and rappers to, to Madison, Wisconsin, which is the, the college town. Um, and, you know, doing everything from booking the venue, selling tickets, uh, booking the artists, etc., Uh, and a number of, of other sort of like small businesses that were just people hustling. Um, uh, I remember there was even a business of selling, uh, subscriptions to like uh, water jugs that that you would have in in your apartment or something. Um, and it was it was this place that uh, for some reason bred this this very entrepreneurial um, mindset and approach where I think uh, people felt free to to try out ideas. Um, I mean, I remember someone started a food delivery app uh, that was local to Madison. Years before Seamless or Grubhub emerged in New York, and it was, it was really interesting, you know, to see these things sort of tested out in this, um, in this environment, in this small community. Uh, and you know, you had a lot of students that were sort of a captive audience um, down to try out new things. Um, and so I think that that was really my my biggest takeaway. And and, and truthfully, uh, schoolwork and grades weren't weren't. Any of our primary focus, um, you know, at the time, if you if you told me in six years I would I would be getting a, a master's degree at the Kennedy School, I would I would laugh at you for sure, um, because it was just we we didn't have as much of an academic mindset at, at, at the time, and I think um, really enjoyed this idea of sort of trying trying out um, different ideas, and so uh, it really led to to what I ended up. Um sort of pursuing as a as a as a first job and as a career path out of that
0: mm. I find that so fascinating. I think that it's so cool to think that like there's this little community where everyone's just feels free to try ideas to to actually like dive deep into the things they're passionate about and see if they can make them into real life and it's so funny because you're you're very right. I mean, that's exactly what you did. I've got here. Not long after graduating, you co-founded your first business or your first initiative, um, Unify Scholars. I mean, it's so fascinating. Tell us a little bit about this idea there and what were some of the early challenges getting this off the ground?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, I, I graduated and uh, didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do, right? With a sociology degree, you're sort of like Uh, You know some things, you maybe know how to write, but uh, you're not really prepared for any job uh, directly, right? It's not a hard skills kind of discipline. Um, But uh, I fell into um, working at this education startup that had just graduated from Y Combinator, didn't even know what Y Combinator was at the time. It was still really, really young, uh, and it was these these uh, co-founders were moving back to New York after finishing the program, uh, and so I I worked there and um, it saw you know how like the next stage up in entrepreneurship worked uh, when you you know have a couple million dollars that you've raised and you have ten people instead of uh, two people. Uh, so that was really fascinating and to see. Um, how feasible it was to sort of start something and 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 grow something, even as uh, as a young person, just sort of trying to to um, scrap something together and test out ideas. Um, so I, I worked there, and then I worked at a, a company called General Assembly um, and uh, became a product manager there. Um, and it was it was um, while it was at General Assembly. Uh, that I, I uh, met someone who I actually had played soccer with in in high school, um, and was interested in uh, starting a, a financial literacy program. Uh, didn't know exactly like what audience exactly to target, but was thinking roughly. You know, kids don't learn basics of how to manage your finances, and that's absolutely true, right? You. Uh, uh, maybe have some random program that teaches you how to write a check or something, which is completely outdated, but you're definitely not learning any like real money management. Um, and so we started sort of thinking through this and, and I I thought back to my own experience, um, applying to colleges, uh, and, you know, going to this private school where only ten percent of students were on financial aid, um, the the college department didn't help me at all in thinking through um, what did it actually mean to pay for college. How was I supposed to look at colleges from a, a financial lens? Um, right in the U.S., unfortunately, university is like fifty thousand dollars a year. Um, and so, uh, you know, I I remember at the time when I applied to schools and was getting my financial aid uh, applications in order, it was really complicated and um, something that nobody was helping me, uh, uh, was, was guiding me through, even though I went to this school with seemingly unlimited resources. Uh, and so I could only imagine what students at Uh, public schools across New York City were going through um, at that same point in the process and so we realized that uh, financial literacy really the lack or the lack thereof sort of starts to come to a head when you are starting to become independent which is oftentimes you're graduating high school and making that transition never had to manage money on your own and you're making this enormous financial decision about um, whether to go to college if so, where to go? Do you take out loans? Do you work while you're in school, et cetera, right? It's actually quite complicated. Uh, and so we just started running, we sort of built out a curriculum ourselves based on our best guess, and started running running a program with, with 20 students that we signed up from high schools around the city um, that were rising seniors, so they were about to um, encounter this exact moment in their lives, and, um, we ended up running that for, for three consecutive summers, all while um, we were both working full time. And so uh, we basically had conversations with our bosses where it was like, listen, I'm gonna end up taking all my sick days over the summer to run this program. Uh, and luckily our, our bosses sort of obliged and said, listen, as long as you get your work done uh, that you absolutely need to, like you do you. Uh, this sounds interesting. Um, so we ran that for three consecutive summers, and uh, what's really interesting about it is it's actually, um, you know, the program started to grow, and the last year we ran um, four different programs, each with about 25 to 30 students, uh, including with uh, KIPP High School uh, in the Bronx. But um, we realized that, obviously, these, these problems are felt across the country, and so um, there was an opportunity to build something um, in this space at scale and there was a really big gap in terms of the products that were available Uh, and so um, my co-founder who i i started unify with is actually uh, taken that as a for-profit startup that i um, advise on uh, called equity and that is um, uh, recently raised a little over a million dollars as a seed round and uh, is, is continuing to grow and, and do really, really well, actually as a for-profit company. So it has sort of this really long genesis to get to the point where it is, um, but it really came from being super proximate to the problem uh, and learning so much from being in the classroom day after day with these students, getting to know their families, uh, talk to their parents, talk to them about um, the issues that they were dealing with their dreams of what they they wanted to be able to do and try to start working through, well, what are the kinds of tools um, that can can actually help people uh, get guided through this process and um, not only make the right decision in college, but then actually succeed through college uh, and graduate better off than um, than you are before.
0: Super interesting. Super interesting. I find What I find so fascinating about you is just your ability to kind of look at situations and go, you know, or or find or see a problem and go, you know what, I think I can kind of find a way to to solve that one. I think that's exactly a similar situation as as your current, as Just Fix. It's kind of, okay, I see this problem, I'm going to go tackle that. How, I mean, not many of us are like that, you know, I, I think it's it's having that entrepreneurial spirit, having that thought of, you know what, I can actually take the, that on board and having the courage to go out and actually do that. It's it's very unique. How do you think we can develop that courage to chase what we want and to go out there and fix those problems we see? Yeah,
1: I I, I mean, I would say two things. One is um, that risk taking is to an extent the thing of privilege, right? And and uh, at the moment that I, I started Unify, I was... Had a really really great job that was um, paying me well enough to, to to take a risk. Was giving me the flexibility to take time off um, in the summer to run these programs. Um, and similarly, when I, you know, when when I got this fellowship and and started JustFix with my co-founders. Um, you know, they the, this program gave a runway um, where you know we had a stipend for a number of months to actually research and and go after um, this issue area and see what kinds of products we could build to to address this issue area. So that's that's the number one thing. Is um, you know, it's it's. Uh, not a surprise, the demographics that you see of the founders that succeed in, in Silicon Valley, right? It's, it's because that risk taking um, is, is more feasible for some people. Uh, and so, um, you know, there are a lot of really amazing programs and VC funds and that type of thing that are, that are popping up to try to fill that gap and um, try to make it easier for um, groups that are un- underrepresented in the current um, founding teams uh, to, to have more of an opportunity. Um, so that's, that's the first thing. The second thing I would say is, um, you know, I, I guess, and, and maybe this is sort of, uh, still along that theme of my dinner table conversations, but I guess I've always sort of looked at, um, at these issue areas and, and, uh, just gotten so frustrated with this, like, lack of fairness that I, I observe in, in particular areas. And, um, why does this system Work the way it does, it's unfair. And rather than saying than throwing my hands up in the air and saying, "Well, nothing's going to change," um, it, wh- why not try to uh, do something to put my energy towards addressing the issue? Um, you know, I, it, it's maybe a, a, a personality type. I don't know, um, but uh, I do think you know again. It's these little moments that happen in your life where you observe particular uh, behaviors or reactions to those to those moments. Um, like my parents saying, I'm just going to start a school out of our house and we're going to make this work. We're going to figure out how to um, create a better elementary school experience for you. Um, I think that that really does seed it in my head that um, we don't just have to accept the status quo, but we can push back on it.
0: Mm love that. So cool. Okay. I want to dive into JustFix. So talk to us about the idea. We've kind of already touched on it, but you know, how did it come about and what were some of the early challenges you faced getting that off the ground?
1: Yeah. So uh, I met my, my co-founders, Dan and Ashley, uh, in this fellowship program run by the Robin Hood Foundation. It's called Blue Ridge Labs. Super unique program. It's out of a foundation that is... Um, uh, you know, a reasonably traditional foundation. Like they are giving grants to homeless shelters, after school programs, soup kitchens, right? Uh, what you think of as like the base of the nonprofit, you know, sort of social services infrastructure. And so when they uh, started building out Blue Ridge, it was really meant to be this place for there to be a little bit more risk taking in terms of seeing if there were opportunities. For some kind of digital products to address the similar problems that the rest of their grantees were were addressing. So, um, you know, how can you address issues in uh, education inequity, um, in housing, et cetera, uh, with through some sort of digital product? But also, how can we support the nonprofits that are in this portfolio with better tools to sort of amplify the work that they do as well? Um, so was really fascinated going into that. And, and you know, what's amazing is, you know, there's 15 fellows in the first year, all with very, very similar uh, missions of, of why they're there. Uh, and that was just really incredible, being in this community of people with um, the the uh, sort of sole idea of how can we apply our, our, our particular skills in this area to these really pressing issues in New York. Uh, and so we uh, started looking at, this issue of, of uh, housing inequality, um, uh, poor housing quality, high eviction rates, uh, increasingly high homelessness rates in New York, and uh, where could we make some sort of meaningful difference, some sort of meaningful intervention? Um, my co-founder Dan had been doing some uh, tenant organizing in his neighborhood in, in Crown Heights um, in Brooklyn, and so had some perspective on um, how we could also use data and leverage open data that that city government releases to uh, give organizers and and other types of housing advocates better tools uh, to do more targeted outreach, uh, get to a point of being able to to basically predict the the buildings um, that might have really serious housing issues. So um, we did a lot of research Uh, talking with a lot of tenants, uh, legal aid attorneys, uh, housing court judges, tenant organizers, etc. And um, the biggest insight in the early days actually came from just sitting in the back of courtrooms and housing courts around the city and uh, seeing countless tenants coming in with no legal representation. But on the other side of the courtroom, the landlord was represented by a lawyer. So you literally had a lawyer against just a layperson, which is, is not how the legal system is supposed to be built, right? Um, you or I going into a courtroom trying to argue a case be a nightmare, yeah. right? This, there's this whole particular language to it, right. Um, it's a whole new set of vocabulary. Um, and, and uh, it's a very intimidating place right? Even the buildings, the second you walk in is super intimidating. So, um, we saw tenants really struggling to basically get successful resolutions to their cases in, in housing court. And so that meant either, um, you know, there were, uh, repairs that the landlord was refusing to make and those weren't getting made, um, even after going to court, there were tenants who were being wrongfully evicted. Um, and, uh, they didn't, um, they didn't have sort of the preparation to be able to defend themselves and prevent that, and so they were literally losing their homes. Um, and it was a really frustrating uh, situation to, to, to witness. And so the, the first product that we built was really to, to address this um, in particular. So basically helping individual tenants um, to organize and present more formal cases um, in housing court, and also report these issues to city agencies, send letters of complaint to their landlord, and sort of go through these kind of best practices of what are the steps uh, that are most likely to get you a successful resolution um, to your case. And so that was sort of the first product and the, the, the series of insights that kind of led to um, uh, really what we built um, in the early stages.
0: Mm. Super fascinating, super interesting. You're tackling such a big issue and an issue that's so prevalent, particularly in this city. And that's why it's, yeah, it's just so fascinating here. Okay, so talk to us a little, little bit about those early challenges you faced, getting that off the ground.
1: Yeah, so the, the number one issue and, the, and the, the main question that we got at the time was, um, you know, we know that this is a big problem. There's uh, 1.2 million New Yorkers live in in houses that the city deems as deficient housing. And so these are apartments that have, you know, three or more serious violations present and, and unaddressed at any given moment. So imagine you have uh, rats, cockroaches, and black mold, like all in your apartment at the same time. That is the day-to-day for basically a fifth of New York City. Um, and unfortunately, that... that you know, kind of um, holds true in some other major cities in the U.S. and I'm sure um, globally. So, uh, you know, when when we were looking at, okay, this is a, a very big market, um, but the most uh, the the first pushback that we got from folks was oftentimes, yes, but but can this um, uh, audience engage with the kinds of products that you're building? And so it was really a question of accessibility, and it was something that w- was front of mind for us from the very beginning. Uh, is you know how can we build tools that are uh, simple that can be used across any device that you that you might have, um, or that we're equipping advocates that tenants are working with. Um, so it could even be a caseworker or a social worker, not necessarily you know a housing attorney. Um, so how do we equip those kinds of advocates with with the that same tool uh, to be able to sort of guide you through it, um, or uh, tenant association or resident association presidents who go through a building and help a number of their neighbors put together cases, um, and so we we tried to think through you know as many of those um, uh, types of of sort of workarounds uh, as possible. To tell you the truth, it's still it's still difficult, right, and and a lot of the Um, uh, the biggest targets uh, for landlords that are trying to displace tenants that are paying a below market rate, uh, you know, and they're trying to displace them to be able to raise the rent. A lot of those tenants, as you can imagine, are elderly. Uh, And they've been in these apartments for a very long time. And they have, uh, you know, a rent stabilized lease. And so they're sort of there for as long as they uh, want to be at a, a rent that is far below market. And so these landlords are heavily incentivized to try to get them out. And so um, that continues to be a hard target group for us to um, make sure that we're, we're building tools that are reaching them where they're at and that are accessible for them to use. And so it really is about who are the other people around them that are supporting them in, in other ways uh, that we can get the tools in their hands and, um, help them sort of uh, support them with with this set of solutions as well. Um, but it's, it's something we, we continue to think through um, to this day and will just constantly be something we, we have to sort of strive to improve on. Mm. Well,
0: I love that. I think that you guys are doing a phenomenal job, so I can't wait to see how this continues to evolve. Wow, okay, cool. So there's so many questions. I'm taking so much in right now. I absolutely <laughs> love this okay so as we do start to wrap up and, and come to the close of today's episode I just want to ask you a couple of last questions and one of which is is my favorite it's Uh-oh. yeah it's what was one of your greatest failures to date
1: Wow you know I would say um, when uh, when we were when we were just getting just fix started um, there were a lot of cases that, um, uh, that we would come across that, uh, we just couldn't, we couldn't address. And I think, um, there's this moment of, um, like existential dread, um, of realizing that there's cases we couldn't address. And they were coming to us as a, as a last ditch, um, option they had, um, uh, exhausted Everything else that they could that they could do, everyone else they could sort of reach out to in terms of uh, legal services, um, services from the city government, and uh, they were coming to JustFix and and looking for like someone to talk to, and um, that's not you know that that wasn't the product we were offering. Uh, we 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 aren't caseworkers, we aren't social workers, uh, and so it's not a it's not a regret. It's more so. Um, uh, you know, it, it provides this like moment of humility, um, that I think is, is really, really super important in especially, uh, in this world of like, um, tech solutionism, right? Where like tech can, can solve everything. Uh, and just realizing that some of these problems are so big and are so complex that, um, no matter what, how, how great a, a product, uh, is that we can build, um, there, there are some of these issues that are so hairy uh, and so difficult that um, we aren't going to be able to address them. and seeing, and seeing that that like we were even the last option someone was going to is really, really super heartbreaking. Uh, and I think it's a moment that um, anybody who sort of works in like the, the social services space um, reaches quite often as well. Um, and I think it's, it's just a really important thing for people to, to keep in mind who are sort of building these kinds of, you know, social impact technology um, organizations is having a lot of humility about what's, what's, what's possible uh, and not thinking that um, you're going to solve every issue in the world.
0: Mm-hmm. I love that. Okay, well, look, George, we've had an absolute blast. I've learned so much just from this last 40 minutes or so. And I firstly just want to acknowledge you for the awesome work you've done and that you're doing. I mean, you've 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 nailed it all and you've been featured everywhere for your work, including the Robert Hood Foundation Fellow, as you mentioned, World Economic you were a World Economic Forum Shaper. Sterling Network NYC Fellow, Forbes 30 Under 30, and to top it all off, you're currently studying your Masters in Public Policy at Harvard. It just blows me away what you've done to date, and I just wouldn't want to acknowledge you for being being an example for our generation, for young leaders out there who are looking to do more, be more, and to make an impact—a real tangible impact like you're making with JustFix. It's just so refreshing to see and knowing that although we can't sol- solve all of the world issues, there are some, we, we can still make a difference. And so we really appreciate you for that.
1: Thank you so much. Really appreciate you having me.
0: Of course. Great. So the final question is how we finish all of our interviews here at the Pierce Project. And that is, what is the value of pursuing what you're most passionate about?
1: It makes it a heck of a lot easier to get up every morning, right? I, I, I can't tell you how many friends I have that uh, work in finance, work in big law in New York and uh, dread waking up and going to work every morning uh, and and uh, complain about it constantly. And even though they may be making five times what, what I do, um, getting to work with the advocates that are so inspiring, um, getting to work with tenants um and hear the kind of of um uh impact that the organization is making uh and seeing these kinds of amazing wins and and real shifts in um political dialogue social dialogue around these types of issues in New York um is really 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 inspiring um and and I do feel like we are uh in this incredible moment um in the in the U S especially, but, but globally where, um, there's been this big swing in one direction. Uh, and I think, um, there's a lot of, of hope and optimism that I bring every single day to, uh, being able to, 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 push things in the other direction and, and creating a more equitable city here in, in New York. Um, and it's, 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 it's been really, really fantastic to be able to wake up every morning and love the people that I work with, uh, and feel like um, my energy will be well spent that day.
0: I love it. Thank you so much, George. We've had an absolute blast. Where can people learn more about you and JustFix?
1: Yeah, so you uh, can go to justfix.nyc. So .nyc is literally instead of .org or .com. Uh, so uh, justfix.nyc, justfix.nyc on Twitter. Uh, and Instagram, uh, and I am Furious George on Instagram. Love that. We'll link them up in the show notes. Thank you.
0: Thanks so much, George, and for everyone listening, we will end with that. Piers, that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Piers to Piers podcast. We hope you've enjoyed your introduction to our latest guest peer and that you find them as gung-ho as we do which is our way of saying inspirational for more make sure to subscribe to our show on iTunes Spotify or any app where podcasts are played and leave us a review we produce with passion and it doesn't stop here to see what else we're up to visit thepeersproject.com or follow us on Instagram the peers project we'll have fresh real talk for you next week peers until then if you need inspiration look amongst your peers